0: don't know if you've noticed it or not, but our band is kind of growing. We give a little love out for them. All right. I noticed this week we had some drums. and I'm liking the drums coming back. That feels very good. A little percussion action. And I think I've talked with uh, Pastor James, and I think uh, on the horizon, obviously, is some more people. One of the things I'm really excited about is in the coming weeks, you're going to notice that we're going to put up some big screens there and there, and we're going to take this one down And what that does is gives us a little bit more space across the center of the stage. And so, anyway, as our numbers are coming back and we see more people as uh, being a part of our worship team again, uh, that just feels good, right? I mean, I'm excited to be together as a church for that. Well, open your Bibles this morning. We are back in the book of 1 Corinthians again, and we're in chapter 5 today. And you remember, over the last number of weeks, we've been covering that first big topic that Paul wanted to cover with the church in Corinth, which was over these rivalries, these factions that had grown up in the church. And he explained over a number of chapters why those were so dangerous and why the church needed to act against those immediately and stop the rivalries that they had formed. The next big problem that's on the horizon and will be with us now for a number of weeks is the issue of sex and marriage. And Paul comes right out of the chute. Guns a-blazing, and so chapter 5, he just kind of wades right into it. And he says, uh, church, you've got a big problem. Corinthian church, big problem. There is a man who is mired in sexual immorality in the church. And of all things, the church, you seem to be celebrating it. You, you s- pretend that there's not a problem here. And you think that somehow this is a man's freedom in Christ that he's expressing. And, you know, you, you've you got a big problem that we need to address. Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Here's what I'd like to do before we really begin and read this passage. I want to make sure that we all take a deep breath because we are a bunch of sinners saved by grace. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. That's the anchor of our salvation. And we are sanctified by Jesus means we're in the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming like Jesus. And that's all accomplished by grace also. And so we need to remember that. We need to remember that we all still sin and that the normal cycle that's explained in the Bible repeatedly is one in which we sin and we repent. God cleanses us, we forgive one another, and we pick up and move on. So there's no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven. We're all in this process of exploring and, and, and experiencing God's forgiveness again and again. What the Bible never promotes is somebody who remains in an unrepentant state as a Christian. So somebody who goes and sins and then continues to sin and never repents of that sin, that's what the Bible, it does not promote that or foresee that. That's not something that it is is saying is, is natural or something that is good. And furthermore, it doesn't envision a church in which the church looks the other way for that or celebrates that in some way and says, wow, look at all of our freedom, it doesn't anticipate that a church will respond in that way towards the the natural or the sin of somebody that's within the body. So this passage is a very important one because it's going to tell us how to respond to a brother or sister in Christ who continues in sin and seemingly has no conscience or may believe that there's no consequences to sin or even more, perhaps, is not aware that their sin is having this kind of effect upon them and upon the body of Christ. How does the church respond in these circumstances? That's what chapter 5 is all about. Your Bibles are open. We're in 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, and I'm starting to read in verse 1. Follow along. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers are idolaters, since then you would need to uh, get out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church Whom you are to judge, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Friends, over almost three decades as a pastor, I have seen a lot. I have seen individuals who have committed adultery and repented of that or seemingly repented of that only to return to that forbidden relationship I've seen spousal abuse. I've seen gambling addictions that have completely destroyed families and marriages. I've seen people leave their spouse for the all-American reason of, uh, I wanted to be happy. I have seen occasions that are difficult all over the place, and there's no two ways around it. When those instances happen, it leaves a knot in the stomach of all of us. Those are not easy circumstances. But I'm here to say there are important circumstances and in today's passage, well, th- this is one of the ways that it's good that we actually are a church that goes through uh, the, the scriptures kind of Bible or uh, verse by verse or chapter by chapter because you come up on passages like this that you might not normally preach because this is a hard one. And today we need to roll up our sleeves and we need to say, okay, what is it that God is telling us and how do we take this very seriously in our church, in our body? Today we're going to learn how to respond when a fellow Christian will sin and not turn back. They won't repent. They just continue with that sin again and again, and they won't repent of that. I'm giving four practical steps today on how to respond to an unrepentant fellow believer. Four steps on how to respond in the instance of an unrepentant fellow believer. All right. Let's march right in and let's go ahead and uh, look at step one. Step one is to begin with observation and a proper attitude. The church in Corinth seemed to be detached from reality. There was a blatant problem right in front of them and they didn't recognize it. Or worse, maybe they thought that it wasn't a problem at all. So just what was the issue? Well, the man in the scriptures is said to have his father's wife. In other words, he was in a sexual relationship with this woman who was his father's wife. Probably not his mother. It was his father who had probably remarried, but somehow he was now in relationship with that woman. We're not sure of all the details of that, but that's the gist of this. And furthermore, the church has a wrong attitude about it. Paul says, you are showing two things. You're showing arrogance and boastfulness. And so the church is saying, wow, look at how free we are. Look at how free this man is that we can, uh, we, we can even do this and be free in Christ. We can be kind of the hip church, as it were, the progressive church, as it were. And Paul says, this is disastrous. You should be mourning over this, not celebrating it, not boasting about it. You should be mourning over this because this man is committing something that is, is wrong. Now, how do we know that this is wrong? I mean, that's a great question to ask, right? I mean, in today's day and age, if somebody did that, there wouldn't be necessarily a law against it. So how do we know that this is wrong? Well, it's spelled out in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8. Here it is. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. And if you go read in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 18, there is a series of, of relationships, sexual relationships that are out of bounds for God's people. There's things like, you know, don't have relations with your sister or your brother. Don't have relations with an aunt or an uncle. Don't have homosexual relationships. It even gets so graphic as to say, hey, animals are out of bounds, as if it need to spell that out. But again, in this area, you know, humans can be pretty creative, so it needs to spell those things out. All of those are out of bounds. But even in the Roman world, if you were not Jewish... The Roman law even said, historians have recorded, that this kind of relationship was out of bounds. And that's why Paul says, you know, you even make the pagans blush with what you're doing. They're repulsed by this, but you don't seem to be. And so again, I'm spelling out why this is a problem. So friends, it starts with observation. It starts with the right attitude. Who's here? What's happening with them? We're just always looking around in the church. That's part of shepherding the church well. And it's amazing what you'll see if you simply look. Sexual sin is, again, the one that is spelled out in this instance, but it's not the only one that could, be, that could involve somebody in an unrepentant sinful state in which they just continue to re- repetitively do this. It's the headline sin, as it were, many times in the church, the sexual sin. But Paul says there's many others. And in verse 11, he spells out what some of those other areas might be that might infect the church with somebody who's unrepentant. And this is the list. Sexual immorality, which is, again, this man and his father's wife. Greed, idolatry, being a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. And I want to just take a minute to just march through each one of those, just very briefly, so you'll get an idea of what Paul's talking about. Sexual immorality is obviously... Sex of any kind which is outside the bounds of a married relationship between a man and a woman. It could include things like pornography, premarital sex, adultery, homosexual unions, and any deviant way. We're really, again, creative people, so we figure out a lot of ways to bend God's best for us, but it's anything that's stepping out of that best spot that God has for sexual unions to occur in. If you look at the one that is greed, it's loving money and using people. And again, the exact opposite of that is what the Scriptures promote. The Scriptures promote us to love people and use money. But if we are individuals who are filled with greed, then we want to use the exact opposite of that. We use people and we love money. And of course, I'm not sure the church is always good at calling out greed, but Paul says, that's one you need to be on the lookout for, and you need to repent of that when you see it. Idolatry is making a God out of anything that's not the true God. In ancient times, that might be that you had some kind of an idol, that you actually had a physical representation of what you thought God was. and You bowed down to that and you worshipped that. But of course, we know that our hearts are idol factories, and so we can make idols out of almost anything. We can make idols out of jobs or sports or politics. People even can become idols for us. I read an article recently that politics is the new religion of Americans. And if that's true, I'm here to say, you're going to be very dissatisfied with that God. That's going to very much fail you, as it were. A reviler is a person who uses words to damage control or insult somebody else's character or reputation. We might call that today in today's day and age an abuser. A drunkard, well, it speaks for itself, is one who has an over-obsession to alcohol or a substance of some kind. A reviler is a dishonest person who uses clever means to cheat others out of something of value. And, you know, the the church has always been this spot where somebody can come in with a quick, rich, quick, rich, quick, get get rich, quick scheme. That's what I meant to say. A get rich, quick scheme and seem to have a number of people that will sign up for that. Why? Because their inherent trust is in the church. And this swindler is the individual that will take advantage of that. Well, so we begin by making the assumption that any of us can be deceived. These practices will happen with us anytime we remain in an unrepentant state and they will damage the church and we have to be on guard for that. We have to be a church that's on the lookout for that. We have to observe well. We have to have the attitude which is not one of just saying, oh, just live and let live, laissez-faire. There has to be something that's serious about that that we want to really uh, address. In 2010... There was a massive earthquake in the Indonesian islands that caused a tsunami. Many of you remember that. I still remember that very clearly, where the tsunami came into several islands and just literally washed people away, washed buildings away, caused untold damage, and lots of people were lost or or, or died or were lost out to sea, never to be recovered again. According to the survivors, that death could have been minimized if they had paid attention to the tsunami warning system. You see, the government had installed this warning system years earlier and it was buoys that sit out in the water and they measured the, weight, uh, the height of waves and if the wave height got too large then they'd send a signal back into the land that there was you know, abnormal wave activity and people could therefore plan and, and get out of the way. Well, over the years, those failed to be maintained and failed to be tested again. The buoys actually became unanchored and they no longer sent a signal back any longer to the land. And so the big day of the the tsunami came and there was no alert. There was no warning because the buoys failed to do their function. As followers of Christ, we have the privilege of sharing Christ's love, but we also have the responsibility to gently confront sin and warn people of judgment. And if, like the buoys, we become detached and we drift away and we pay no attention to that, well, then we fail to warn people of disaster. And so the first step we have to take is to be on alert. We have to observe and we have to possess the right attitude about this. And so, again, that's the first charge I give you. Number two, the second step in responding to an unrepentant believer is removal with the hope of renewal. Removal with the hope of renewal. You notice the play on words there. Paul clearly says you are to remove this man from your fellowship, meaning that he can no longer be a part of the worship. He can't be a part of a home group, for instance, or communion. He can't participate in that. Paul even says later in the chapter, I don't even want you to eat with a guy like this. And we go, whoa, Paul, this seems rather extreme. If you're going to understand what Paul's extreme approach is here, then you have to understand some of the very technical words that he uses. Paul says that the church is to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm not going to be with you personally, but I'll be with you in spirit. So be in the power and the presence of me and of the Lord. And this is what you are to do. Verse 5 is very important to understand. And it's a little bit difficult to understand. Here's what it says. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Believe me, much ink has been spilled on what it means to deliver to Satan somebody for the destruction of their flesh. And there's only one other time that that's used, that phrase is used in the scriptures. It's also used by Paul ironically in 1 Timothy, and he says that Hymenaeus and Alexander also should be delivered to Satan for the destruction of their flesh in order that they might learn not to blaspheme and so we've got this man who's involved in sexual immorality, those men in that other instance that are involved in blaspheming, and he says in both instances, deliver them over for the destruction of their flesh. What does that mean? Well, there's two predominant views of this. I'd like to give you both of them today, and I'll ultimately tell you which way I kind of land. One is a very modern view, and the modern view is that delivering over somebody over for the destruction of their flesh is delivering them over to death. Paul's saying, I want this man to die. And the example of that would be Ananias and Sapphira. And they obviously cheated the uh, church by, by selling some land and then only giving a portion of it to the church and therefore lying about it. You remember that we covered that not long ago. And so in that view, Paul is saying, I actually hope the man dies. Because if he'll die now, maybe before he apostatizes completely and denies Christ completely, he'll be saved in the end of times just by the skin of his teeth. And so that's one view. The second view is a more traditional view. It's, I think, the predominant view, and it's actually the one I hold. And delivering somebody over for the destruction of their flesh is actually a remedial step with the hope that there will be repentance and there will be renewal. When we deliver somebody over to the destruction of their flesh, we're allowing them, as it were, to be outside some of the protections that are with the church, some of the protections with God, and they begin to feel the pinch, as it were, of life that's outside the grace of God. Somebody uh, that I read this week, David Pryor, I think said it where, well, here's the quote. It's the equivalent of being dropped defenseless and disowned in enemy-occupied territory. So when you're doing that, you're basically saying, I want the person to experience what it's like, again, to be uh, not with Christ in order that there might be a sense of alarm, that there might be concern, and there might ultimately be a return to their senses and that they would be corrected and brought back into the uh, fellowship of the church. So why would the church take steps that are this extreme? Well, because we hope that it brings repentance and ultimately renewal for that person, And we can't really cover this passage well unless we remember that Jesus himself talks about this. Matthew chapter 18. Let me rehearse that with you just real quickly because Jesus gives four steps. He says, when a brother sins against you, there's a four-step process. Number one, go to that brother individually and tell him what he's done. And if he repents, you're done. You just covered that with your brother and you don't need to go any further most of the time that's the way our conflict and sins against us are resolved is just going to the person. But if that doesn't work, then he says step two is take somebody else with you and sit with those other people in order that this might be hashed out, that there might be forgiveness and renewal that happens in the midst of that. And if that happens with just a very small group of people, wonderful. But if that doesn't cause repentance, then there is a third step. And he says you are to tell it to the church. In our instance, I think that often means that we include larger groups, including elders, into that whole process. And believe me, I've served with a lot of elders that know what that feels like in order to be able to say, there's something that really has gone off the rails here. There's a person who's gone off the rails. How do we want to respond to that as a church? And he says there's a fourth and final step, Jesus says. If they still don't respond, even after the church is beginning to address it, then you are to." Have that person removed from the church, and he says, Jesus, these are Jesus' words, not mine, you are considering that person now as a pagan. You're considering that person as a person who does not know Christ. Now, I'm going to assume that as Paul writes this, either he anticipates that the church will take these steps or they perhaps have already taken some of those steps. But you know, again, we have to remember, this is Jesus talking here and Paul would have known that. And so this is the fourth and final step in a process that is, is very determined ahead of time. And that again, most of the time resolves things. But in this instance, they are to remove this man because they want his renewal and they want the protection of the church. All right, there's a third thing. The third step along the path of responding to an unrepentant believer uh, believer is to stop the spread. I'm in verses 6 to 8 right now, and it deals with leaven and a Passover lamb. And by the way, out of this whole section, I think this might be the spot that can be the most confusing. So let me explain that to you. Uh, Real simply, yeast is the operating metaphor here, and yeast is something that we put into bread to make it rise, we put it in the bread it covers the whole loaf if you leave leaven in long enough it goes through the whole loaf and you can't get it out anymore it covers the entire loaf of bread and yeast can be a very good thing because it makes bread rise it makes it taste good it makes it taste airy and fluffy and light and so you know yeast can be a very good thing but in this instance yeast is a bad thing and the point is is that it spreads very rapidly in the whole lump of dough and you can't stop it once it gets underway. Uh, maybe a good example of that is yawns. Have you ever noticed when somebody yawns, it's almost impossible for others not to yawn? It's like yawning just kind of spreads in the room once one person starts it. And it's just, you know, very progressive in that way. And so again, if yawning was like sitting, you would say, hey, stop the yawning because you don't want it to spread among everybody. In this case, yeast is the operating metaphor. And he says that yeast will just spread very rapidly, and so you need to to arrest it, as it were. Yeast here represents the former way of life. It represents what we did when we sinned and didn't even care about it. And he says the Passover lamb has come and has done something in the midst of this. Now, again, Passover lamb, yeast, I'm not sure I completely see the connection here, so remind me. Let's remember what the Passover lamb is. That's where Egypt is in slavery, and, or excuse me, Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And in order to free them, God says, I'm going to bring a lamb to you. You're going to put the lamb's blood over your doorpost. The angel of death is going to pass over your homes and visit all the homes that don't have the blood, and they're going to lose their firstborn. And that's what happens. And the Egyptians say, please leave. We want you out of our country. We don't want to suffer any more losses. And so that's how the Israelites left Egypt. When they left, they left in such haste, they left so hurriedly that they didn't have time to put the yeast into their bread. And so they ate unleavened bread. When the Jews were celebrating Passover, they took seven days to remove all the yeast out of their home in preparation for that holiday, in remembering that they had left Egypt in such haste and didn't have that yeast. And so again, that's a way for them to say, wow, remember that time and what God did. As it were, we are now saying that we are a part of the unleavened group because we have this Passover lamb that's come with us. He's forgiven us. He's protected us. And we don't return to our former ways of life. The former ways of life is the old leaven. And Paul calls that malice and evil. We're part of the new leaven, he says, which is filled with sincerity and truth. And so the church who turns its blind eye to sin is allowing the sin to spread and they're part of the old leaven. We're part of the new leaven is what uh, Paul says, and the unleavened bread. And so we are willing to stop the spiritual cancer before it would spread very rapidly. Well, there's one more thing I want you to see, and this one is super important. In fact, I think this one's often overlooked in chapter 5, and I want to make sure you get it. Paul said the fourth step is to make a distinction between the person in the church and the person in the world. Paul says, in my previous letter I wrote to you and again, there's a letter that Paul had written that we don't have. We call that the lost letter. And Paul wrote to the church, and apparently in the church he said to them that he did not want them to associate with immoral people. Well, the church in Corinth thought, wow, I guess, I guess we're not supposed to associate with anybody in the world that is now immoral. And imagine living in Corinth under those conditions. There was immorality all over the place. I mean, look at all the other temples. Look at the, 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 the sex slaves and everything else that was going on within Corinth. And, he, and, you know, how would you not associate with the people in that world? Paul says, you know, I didn't mean the people of the world at all because if you were not going to associate with anybody in the world, you'd actually have to leave the world. And so, of course, you're going to have relationship with those individuals, and I didn't mean for you to cut those individuals off. You're going to give them your attention so that they can understand the love of God. It's not long ago that I was playing pickleball and was with some young guys in their 20s, they were pretty newly married guys, and they were having this open conversation about what would be termed an open relationship today in marriage. So they were talking about being married but giving permission to each other in order to have other relationships on the side. And I'm like, whoa, okay, hey, we're in, we're in 2021, I guess. And uh, I, I was just kind of taken aback by that, and I was like, inside, I was like, dudes, this is a bad idea. God very quietly spoke to me. It's Brian. He was saying, Brian, don't, don't remove yourself from these guys. These guys are guys that need me. And they're just so blind to their own sin that they don't even know the difference. And so again, I'm not to remove myself from those relationships, but lean into those relationships with the hope that they would understand the grace of God. But, but Paul says we are to judge those in the church who call themselves Christians, but continue in sin and do not repent. In today's day and age, any form of judgment of any kind is viewed as off limits in society and oftentimes even in the church. How many times have I heard Christians say, I won't judge anybody else because I have my own sin? Maybe you've even said that yourself. Paul says, actually, there is a time to judge. There's a time to judge when there is a fellow believer who is sinning but won't repent. And that is a time where the church is called to judge that. And again, some would even quote Jesus. Uh, You know, don't judge lest you be judged, right? I mean, you would even say perhaps that if you were trying to think about that uh, idea of not judging anybody at any time. Well, let's remember Matthew 18. We just covered it. Jesus says, no, there's a four-step process. And anytime you see somebody who's sinning, you you step in. You evaluate that. You uh, judge that, as it were, with the hopes that there would be repentance and there would be renewal. So the church is very slow to judge those outside the church because those people are blinded to sin. They're slaves to sin. They don't even know it. But we're very serious about people in the church who sin and refuse to repent. Paul says that there's a time and a place for the church to recognize a wayward believer. There's a time to judge, a time to say that they've sinned against God, that they're hurting themselves, they're hurting the church. And in this instance, the church ultimately, if it won't stop, is to remove that individual from fellowship. One of the main ways that we perhaps would apply this sermon today is to evaluate our own lives. Are we doing something repetitively that is really displeasing to God? Perhaps somebody here today or somebody online listening is right now involved in a sexual relationship, which is out of bounds. And you know that. God keeps speaking to you about that, but you keep turning that off. And the scriptures are calling you, respond before it's too late. Maybe some of you are angry or you're abusive to your spouse or to your family. God wishes for that to stop. Love does not prevail. Love must prevail. And it doesn't prevail when there's an ongoing anger that's in the home. And so that's one side of application, and I could go on with other ways that God might be speaking to you through the Holy Spirit, but there's a personal inventory that we all take as a result of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we have a bent towards repenting, whenever we need to do repenting. But the other side of this is how to operate as a church. What do you do when somebody spiritually goes off the rails? The passage says that we obviously are to take that very seriously, We're to take steps that demonstrate how serious that can be. As a pastor, I can't overlook that. I need to be uh, decisively bold in those instances in order to take steps forward. And honestly, I have to tell you today, I have never turned somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. And I think this week, God was asking me, Brian, that's what I say in the scriptures. Are you willing to do that if needed? Now, it's not to say that I've never exercised some level of spiritual discipline with people. I've done that many a time. But this exact wording of delivering somebody over for the destruction of their flesh, I've never really thought of that. i never really practiced that. And God's saying, Brian, will you pick up that mantle? Will you do that if it's needed? Are we as a church so committed to the holiness of God that we would participate to this level of making sure that we are a clean people before God? And clean doesn't mean sinless. Clean just means that we are sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, forgiving. And that's the healthy nature of a a good church, a, a holy church. It looks like that, is that we're just aware of the grace that we need and we're aware of the forgiveness we need and we're aware of the course correction that God wants to give to us. Church, there's a time for judgment. As counter cultural as that would be, there is a time for judgment. Judgment must occur when sin continues with no seeming repentance. Judgment must occur when sin continues with no seeming repentance. Father, I'm very well aware that this passage is a heavy one. This passage is a serious one. It talks about serious matters that happen in the church and that usually cause all kinds of untold damage Lord, we pray that we as a church would be filled with a group of individuals that are just quick to, quick to repent, quick to say, I was wrong, quick to say, I want to turn back, turn course, and trust God. And I pray, Lord, that that's first and foremost what would be evident with us. But, Lord, as that fails to happen, I pray that we as a church would take the steps further that are needed, all the way up to removal if that's what's needed. Lord, we care about your church, and we care about people and their their full restoration to you through the gospel. And this is one of the important ways that we explore that. We deliver our lives to you today, Lord, with gratitude for all that you've done for us and all that you've forgiven us of. May we continue in your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.